Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Places, and particularly buildings, often capture history. Uh, So what places or buildings could capture the surreal absurdity of the Trump age, of the period when Donald Trump is being the president of the United States? One place that I think somehow epitomizes, captures all the complex absurdity of the Trump age is his club in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. We're very lucky that we now have a book about Mar-a-Lago written by four top journalists um, with expertise in Trump and in Florida. Uh, The book is called The Grifters Club, and I'm lucky enough to have one of its authors, uh, Nicholas Nehamas, uh, to talk about The Grifters Club and the significance of Mar-a-Lago to the Trump age. Uh, Nick, is that fair? Um, Is is Mar-a-Lago, so to speak, the, the Camelot, if that's the right word, of the Trump age? That's a great way to describe it. It has, Mar-a-Lago has always been the place closest to Trump's heart. It's what brought him the high society status that he was not born into. He was born with money, but not with class, as they say. You know, he was a kid from Queens, and Palm Beach was the Shangri-La of America's upper class, you know, particularly the Northeast set. And so by purchasing Mar-a-Lago in the 80s for a song, as Trump is all too happy to remind us, he inserted himself into a class that had never really accepted him, and it would take years, and some still do not. And now, of course, legally, he's made it his home, which is one member told us just confirms what everyone already knew. Trump's home is Mar-a-Lago, not New York. And Nick, very briefly, give us a, a, a history of Mar-a-Lago. I know it was built in, in the 20s by uh, a, a, a high society heiress. Um, so uh, it, it wasn't always Trump-owned or Trumpian in any way. No, it was a, a beautiful mansion constructed by Marjorie Merriweather Post, heiress to the Post serial fortune and a very accomplished businesswoman and art collector in her own right. She traveled the world. Mar-a-Lago has the largest collection of Moorish tiles. It has stones from a Spanish uh, castle in Spain. It's really a, a beautiful, you know, kind of Moorish style complex. And it was a Shangri-La of its day, too. Um, Marjorie Merriweather the Post used it for incredibly lavish parties. You know, this was the Roaring Twenties, after all. Um, Eventually, it became something of a white elephant. Um, She always wanted it to be the Winter White House and bequeathed it to the federal government. And President Nixon, who had um, his own uh, place in Key Biscayne, was enamored with the idea but it was just too expensive. The federal government ended up um, 
giving it back to her foundation, which then struggled mightily to sell it off until Donald Trump entered the picture. There's something uh, as if it, it could have almost have come out of Fitzgerald. I could imagine Fitzgerald writing a novel in the 20s or in the 1930s set at, at Mar-a-Lago. Um, did that come to mind while you were writing the book, the, the, the fictional quality of the place? It, it absolutely did. I mean, it's this place that most people, you know, don't have any access to. It's very much the book takes you behind the gilded gates of this club where the wealthiest people in America, you know, from Jeffrey Epstein to Robert Kraft have these wild parties. I mean, in the 90s, especially when Trump was, you know, in his full playboy mode, he would bus up cheerleaders and athletes. He very much changed the scene in Palm Beach. What is the fact, um, Nick, that Trump seems to be the only person who, 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 who knew how to make Mar-a-Lago economically viable? What does that tell us about the American economy and the demise of the old aristocracy and of their buildings and places? Well, that's a great, that's a great question. So Trump bought it as a, a winter home originally. He wanted it to be his, his vacation spot, but he quickly found he could not afford it. And there's a parallel here in, in Trump turning Mar-a-Lago into a club and how he entered politics. Trump has always been very good as a businessman at seeing an angle that exists. And in Palm Beach, he saw that there were many people who had a lot of money but were black or Jewish or it was new money and were being excluded from the older waspy high society clubs that existed in Palm Beach. And so Trump very much marketed Mar-a-Lago as a place for the out crowd to become the in crowd. And he did typical things like pretend that Prince Charles and Princess Diana were members. He gave them honorary memberships. And I think Henry Kissinger was another one. And they said, uh, we don't really belong to this club. And that parallels the politics because Trump, again, saw this, these voters who felt excluded both from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party who felt like they weren't being heard. And he had a message for them, a message of, of anger um, in many cases, a message of exclusion, a message of racism in some cases that these voters responded to. So it's the economics of access. And uh, I, I was really struck by that while I was reading the book. And, in, and, it, and it brought to mind another guest we've had on the show, Joel Kotkin, who talked about this re-feudalization of, of America, the fact that America never was, of course, in the Middle Ages, and at least in a European sense, because as a country, it didn't exist. Um, but the fact that um, America is increasingly becoming a feudal place. While I was reading Mar-a-Lago, it seemed like uh, it is almost a recreation of feudalism. It's a king's court. It's a, a, a self-evident, unabashed, unashamedly hierarchical place in, in social terms. It's as if it, 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 it reminded me very much of, of the king's court in, in, in medieval Europe. That's a metaphor we explore a lot in the book because you're absolutely right. I think the most vivid illustration of it is where people sit at dinner. Trump, of course, likes to be you know, in the center of the action. And you can tell your status in the court you know, from, from Lord down to Earl 
by how close you're allowed to sit to the president. The people who've been members for the longest time are always at the tables closest to the president. And it's become a real battle with people calling up the manager and asking if they can sit at a table closer to him because they know that's where the president will stop by and make small, you know, make small talk, chat with them. And so there's even a rotation system where the club staff have to rotate who gets to sit closest to the king in order to keep everyone happy. So not only is it a court, but it also seems to be defined by its walls. We know that Trump has endlessly used the wall metaphor or trope to, 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 to um, generate political support. But Mar-a-Lago is like a castle. It's surrounded by at least metaphorical walls and moats. Uh, it's totally inaccessible, right? And, 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 and the wall, the idea of the wall seems central in its success. Well, there is one key to the door of that castle, and that is money. If you can afford the entry fee, which is now $250,000 per year just to get in, as well as the dues, Trump will welcome you with open arms. In fact, the Trump Organization doubled the price after his election, knowing that there was going to be more and more and more demand. So money is what brings access to the club. And the president has rather unashamedly promoted the club from his position as president of the United States. What is $250,000 a year buy you? Is that the entry fee or is that an annual rate? That's the entry fee. The, and uh, then the what's the annual rate? Oh, gosh, off the top of my head, it's several, it's in the tens of thousands. And are they oversubscribed or will they take anyone with 250K? So they have a cap set by the village code of, of 500 members. Um, so people have actually been kind of trying to sell their memberships. Um, and uh, there's a kind of a black market for these memberships, people making introductions, taking a fee, trying to, trying to get people in. You describe uh, the, the building itself as, as, as ornate, but also very tasteful. How, how has Trump imported his own brand of bad taste into Mar-a-Lago? How has so, it been, how has it become, and I use this word carefully, infected by, by the Trump ethos or lack of ethos? So it is a nationally protected historic site, the 17 acre property. So the buildings are, they required a lot of repair, but they had to be kept in their original uh, state, except Trump has built one major addition. You can guess that he named it after himself, the Donald J. Trump Grand Ballroom. It is Versailles, <laughs> reimagined by, Donald Trump. There's a great anecdote where when he walked in and the first, uh, the first time it was used was for his wedding, but when he walked in before it opened, he looked around and, you know, the chandeliers were great. He loved the mirrored walls, but the gold paint on the moldings did not look real enough to him. And it turned out that's because it wasn't. So he spent $7 million in addition to what he'd already spent building the thing to coat it in gold paint. Now, what he didn't realize is that because of the mirrors, the acoustics in this place are unbelievable, or unbelievably bad, I should say. My co-author, Sarah Blasky, and I went to a charity event at Mar-a-Lago in the Donald J. Trump Grand Ballroom and found that 
if the Italian popper singer was on stage crooning, you couldn't hear yourself think. And so Trump has an incredible eye for certain details, like whether the gold is convincing enough. But when it comes to things like acoustics, he doesn't have a clue. Yeah, I was really struck by, by, by that anecdote in the book about his obsession with, um, with the detail on the ceiling. Um, Mar-a-Lago, of course, is in Florida, perhaps the key battleground in, in, in the upcoming election, and a state that on so many levels, from, from COVID to the, the Bush-Gore dispute, seemed to encapsulate all the, all the ambiguities and hypocrisies and tragedies of contemporary America. How does Mar-a-Lago fit in, to, in your mind at least, to the Florida narrative, particularly in a contemporary sense, when it comes to COVID? Well, Mar-a-Lago actually found itself the, the epicenter of a COVID outbreak when President Trump, as he often does, hosted a foreign leader there, in this case, Jair Bolsonaro, the uh, president of Brazil. And it turned out that his aide had COVID, it spread around, other people tested positive. And the club, as you know, when the state of Florida shut down, the club shut down as well, but gradually and very slowly. And this illustrates the point of your question, I think, the very wealthy members of this club did not believe that they were at risk from COVID. They still wanted to go swimming at the club and play tennis and have dinner. You know, what they did do was fire their housekeepers and gardeners because they thought that immigrants were bringing COVID in. One man told a staffer that it was the first time he'd ever vacuumed in his life after he got rid of his housekeeper. Now, of course, Palm Beach became, and I mean the county became one of Florida's epicenters for many months of, of COVID. Even the Republican governor, who's been no friend to masks, commented on how few people he saw in that county wearing masks when he visited. The book, uh, Nick, is called The Grifters Club, which brings to mind Scorsese's great 1999 movie, The Grifters. Um, why did you choose that name? What is a grifter exactly? A grifter is a con man, someone who's gaming the system, tricking people, and in general, an opportunist of the highest caliber. And we chose the, we chose the title because, you know, what you see at Mar-a-Lago, and we back this up with the reporting in the book, is something of a grift. President or Donald Trump has become president, and he has used his office to benefit financially tremendously. The revenues at Mar-a-Lago are double what they were before he became or before he announced his run for president. Now he's hurt himself with comments such as the ones he made after the white supremacist march at Charlottesville. But business has been very, very good for Trump since he became president. And there's a real constitutional issue with the emoluments clause that forbids presidents from profiting uh, from domestic and foreign governments off of their office. And Experts say that it seems pretty clear the Trump organization is violating that clause. So Donald Trump, as you're suggesting, is the grifter in chief. And um, perhaps if by some peculiar circumstance he's reelected, it may be another area where he'll be impeached in, uh, in, in his second term. But it, it's more than just Trump, isn't it? You, you present this club as being a place where grifters of the world have somehow congregated. You write about guys like uh, Guido Lombardi, a kind of a, 
uh, an, a supposed Italian uh, aristocrat who, who used his access to Trump to introduce him to uh, Mongolian diplomats trying to orchestrate some sort of spectacle around career. And, and your presentation of Mar-a-Lago is one where everyone there, well, certainly all the members, seem to be grifters. Everyone has an angle, and there is a food chain from Donald Trump all the way down. The, the reason I think that Mar-a-Lago attracts so many of these characters is that so much of what happens there is secret. There are no visitor logs. There's rarely any press there. It's not like you can be, you know, in, in Washington, you can be seen coming in and out of the White House. At Mar-a-Lago, it's very different. So it creates an atmosphere where it's possible for people with an angle to really pursue it in secrecy. You have three fellow authors. Uh, it's unusual to have a book written by four such high profile journalists. Is that why you needed four people? Did you have a real problem accessing Mar-a-Lago? How much time did you and your fellow authors spend there? Uh, so it took months getting the sources for this book who were largely members and staffers at the club. The staffers were very cautious because they were nervous about losing their jobs and the members were worried about, you know, this being a hit piece. And I think in the end, it's, it's very fair to them and the president and the staffers, you know, their stories are really what made the book, but it did take a, a huge amount of effort because it's a book that, that goes everywhere from international politics to health code violations to the you know choice of music and decor at the club to possible espionage. So it took a very diverse set of skills to tell the tale. It's a wonderful book, rich, um, very much alive. As I said to you before we got on camera, I think it would make a great movie or certainly TV show. But I think it's laced with a moral repugnance. You and your fellow authors seem to be just horrified by this thing. I mean, this is not an amusing book. It's not fun. It's very serious. Um, and, it, and it reveals a world that is just so morally distasteful. It horrified me. Is that fair? Is that what you wanted to elicit from your reader? Well, I, I think Mar-a-Lago is really a problematic place. It, it illustrates the stressors that this administration is putting on American democracy just because the club is this bizarre mingling place for, as you said, a Fitzgerald, Fitzgeraldian cast of characters. And it, it is at once both secret and also incredibly open. The, the number of intruders who've gained access to the club over and over is really staggering. And that's because the president has a financial interest in not putting his members through Secret Service pat-downs and elaborate background checks, and, and that's something that national security experts worry about very much. Now, I do think we tried our best to tell the book with some sense of humor and sense of place, because that is really the only way to tell a story that is so serious uh, without losing your audience. Carl Hyacin was very much an inspiration for the book and read an early draft and even was gracious enough to blurb it on the back cover. At the end of the day, it is a true Florida story. Uh, I'm pretty convinced that Marjorie Merriweather Post is turning in her grave at the thought of Trump turning her beautiful building into a grifters club. She started the thing in 
1923, 100 years ago. Uh, in 50 or 100 years, how do you think we'll look back at this Trumpian Mar-a-Lago um, scam, essentially, this, this grifters club or this club for grifters built by the grifter in chief? How is it going to look historically? It certainly won't be owned by Trump in, in 100 years. I doubt it will be owned by his family uh, in 10 years. I think we will see it as the encapsulation of a, a bizarre period in American history that very much resembles the 1890s or the 1920s. This is our Gilded Age, a time of incredible economic inequality, political strife, and Mar-a-Lago, this feudal castle, as you put it, represents so much of what seems to have gone wrong with this country in the eyes of very many people, you know, whether they're on the left or the right, Trump talked about so much about draining the swamp, but in fact, Palm Beach and Mar-a-Lago really represent the swamp even more than Washington, D.C. This is the real swamp down here in Florida. D.C. is minor league in comparison. Very minor league. Uh, in an early um, anecdote in the book, you say that Trump likes to think of himself as Louis XIV. I don't know how much he knows about Louis XIV. But of course, Louis XIV was the guy who essentially triggered the French Revolution and the storming of the barricades and the guillotining of a large section of the French aristocracy. Um, do you think it's conceivable in the future as America becomes more and more feudal. People start dying from starvation and homelessness and disease. That a place like Mar-a-Lago will be stormed and these people put to the sword. <laughs> well, I think that's the fear that a lot of people have. I mean, certainly when we live in a system that a pandemic causes so many Americans to lose their health insurance. I think that raises questions in a lot of people's minds about whether this is a fair system or not. I mean, a pandemic. It, it goes, when... but, but Nick, it goes beyond fairness. We know it's unfair, but it's just so profoundly, self-evidently, flagrantly unfair. And you have a president who talks about, you know, wars and created the ultimate war with this insider club for grifters. Um, I mean, at what point is America becoming like Romania? And at what point will Trump end up like the, the Trump clan, like the Ceausescu clan, and get, just simply get dragged out and shot by an angry people? Well, Trump's real skill, I think, is at branding himself, because he does come from the swamp. And he's talked about how he's played the game and given money to, to both sides. And yet, in the eyes of his supporters, he is seen as clean because he is so wealthy, he understands how this world works. One, one thing we heard over and over from members is that they trust Trump to do the right thing, regardless of whether it benefits his financial bottom line. And if it does happen to do so, they don't care because in his place, they would do the same thing. And they don't think he's being driven by the money. It almost seems like an accoutrement to his virtual reality show, except it's become physical. <laughs> Very much so. So Nick, finally, um, I always say this at the end because I have to, because everyone has a new book out, but with The Grifters Club, I really strongly recommend it. It's, as you said, it's very readable and it's short and fun and interesting and provocative and also 
profoundly shocking, I think, in a moral sense. So everyone should read The Grifters Club. Is there anything else people should read? Should they be going back to Fitzgerald uh, or, or someone else from history to, 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 to make sense of what's happening in Mar-a-Lago? Well, I've been looking forward a little bit. Uh, my colleague at the Sun Sentinel, another reporter in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, has a great new book out called Disposable City about Miami, Miami's future on the shores of climate catastrophe. And it really looks at how construction in this city is happening at such an unbelievable rate, driven by money from overseas, much of it dirty, and people can see the streets flooding in front of them, and yet nothing is stopping. The cranes are as numerous as they've ever been. And I think it illustrates a kind of short-sighted American way of doing business that has got us into this pickle in the first place. And this book illustrates why there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. And, you know, in a hundred years, Mar-a-Lago and Miami, you're right, they may not be owned by anyone because they may be underwater. And that's a result of the choices we And the author of this book, Nick? Mario Ariza. And uh, Mario Ariza and his book has actually been on the show last month. Uh, oh. This show is not a grifters club. I didn't pay Nick to say that. But it, it is, a, a, absolutely, Nick, I think it's, it's, it's an appropriate compliment, if that's the right word, for the Grifters Club. I didn't realize. I'm very glad you had him on. It's a great book. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.